3: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. We are this close to Donald Trump declaring himself to be God.
4: I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution.
3: I have said all this before, and you at least have thought all this before. Trump is manifestly insane, worse now even than 2016. Having touched ultimate power and received unconditional support from his cultists, he lives only to gain it again. If it is granted to him, he will not voluntarily give it up in his lifetime. He is our Hitler, the Hitler of 1933, not of 1940, not yet. And that statement about retribution, reeking either of the twisted mind of Stephen Miller or someone trying to one-up Stephen Miller, escalates Trump's eight-year-long terrorist attack on this nation to a different level, to one of Dorothy Parker's fresh hells. If this country permits him to be nominated for president, if we permit him to be nominated for president, if you and I permit him to be nominated for president, by that action, we will be setting the stage not just for the vengeance and vendettas and bloodthirsts Trump has vowed to enact theoretically on behalf of his cult, but in reality, on behalf of himself and the largest ego, the least burdened by conscience of any person living. Just another Trump campaign would again magnify and multiply the obsession with political violence on the right and within the Republican Party. Since the monster said these words Saturday night at CPAC, they have become the fascists' new rallying cry. I am your retribution. Sane America has had the audacity to vote them all out, to beat their brains in when they resorted to violence. We have arrested them. We have prosecuted them. We have searched the home of their deified leader. We have accused him of crimes and most certainly will prosecute him for crimes. And we, most importantly, have refused to bend to their will, their certainty, their theocratic madness, their whiteness, and we will be punished, you and I, because a vote for Trump in 2024 is a vote for retribution for vengeance, for bloodshed. Trump's targets have always been obvious. They're always the same in any state which descends into fascism and dictatorship and worship of the chosen one. It can be argued with some success that the victimization and scapegoating of the other that Trump promised in 2016 was never fully executed because no matter how much the system failed to isolate him and prosecute him and remove him from office for his hundreds of crimes, the bureaucracy did drag him down. What he could not do himself immediately, what he did not know how to do himself immediately, was immediately impeded by everything from people around him with weak consciences, but consciences nonetheless and in the final acts of madness and rebellion and insubordination by the sheer incompetence of the idiots he chose to do it for him. In short, for nearly all of Trump's presidency, he was on defense. Do you want to give him another chance to play offense? Do you want to give him another chance to focus that violence and the need of his cultists to blame and persecute and identify the other and kill them? Do you want to give him another chance to make the calculation that there are two kinds of people in this world, and there are enough of the latter in this country that he scapegoats and bullies and targets and kills enough of one minority group or another which they hate, they will support him when he tries to stay in power. Because we already know the first group he'll target. At that same conservative political action conference, the one dedicated to true American values, the one run by the married guy being sued for groping another conservative man during a conservative campaign, the essence of the last year of fascist attacks on LGBTQ people, on trans people, on medicine, on science, on supporters, on allies, and in the fascist mind, that's all one thing, even though in reality it is not all one thing. The essence of where I am your retribution will be directed first, where this year of priming the cult to hate and threaten and ultimately kill, quote, groomers, unquote, is going to lead him and the cult. All that was focused and directed by a child named Michael Knowles, a failed actor with a disturbing resemblance to the loathsome family guy cartoon character Quagmire. An individual who has found his own loathsome calling as a salesman of hate to those who live to hate. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology at every level. To an America rightly horrified by this call for genocide, Knowles tried the oldest conservative trick in the book. He didn't say that. He's going to sue. He never said eradicate people who are transgender. He said transgenderism must be eradicated. The debate which has followed has been performative and largely irrelevant. Listen again to that clip and recognize with me for a moment that the key word he spits out in it is not eradicated. It is a different word. And that word renders this debate about what he really meant meaningless. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology at every level. The key word is not eradicated. The key word is entirely. He said transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. And entirely means entirely, completely, exclusively. Totally. Wholly. If I am going to eradicate something entirely, that means everything connected to it. Not just the idea of it, nor the process, nor the acceptance, nor the science, nor the future, nor the past. But the people who defend the idea and the people who are involved with the process and the people who encourage the acceptance and the people who participate in the science, the word is entirely. And if you say that something must be eradicated entirely, entirely excludes nothing. It has been suggested that if you want to know what Knowles really meant, you should just substitute a word or phrase for transgenderism and rewrite that sentence, a word like blackness or Judaism, and imagine the reaction then. I suggest you try the word Trumpism. What would happen if a Knowles got up there and said Trumpism must be eradicated from public life entirely? As Knowles and his fellow putrid, opportunistic, amoral, arrested development scumbags have already attacked transgenderism, have they not attacked transgender people? Have they not attacked doctors? Counselors, schools, hospitals, supporters, politicians, have they not already shown what Michael Knowles meant when he said transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely? Did they issue some sort of asterisk saying only attack the idea, not any of the people involved? And we all missed that. All of us missed it, including the fascists who killed more than 30 transgender people in this country last year and more than 300 in the 10 years since the human rights campaign began tracking this nightmare? Entirely. The genocidal word there is entirely. Oh, and if you somehow miss that point, Knowles' real point, don't forget he added later, quote, at every level. I am your retribution. Trump has not yet grasped the scythe his imitators have begun to swing at those whose genders and sexuality they do not understand, or they fear, or they hate, or they see in themselves and don't want to. But he will. Against what group has he not? This is a creature who has managed to defend anti-Semitism and defend the new theocratical fascists of Israel, sometimes in the same speech. On Saturday, though, Trump stuck to a more familiar target— and they will be the victims of I Am Your Retribution, his original favorite hate groups.
4: Under my leadership, we will use all necessary state, local, federal, and military resources to carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. And we will pick them up, and we will throw them out of our country, and there will be no questions asked.
3: No questions asked. So no laws, no appeals, nothing but trucks driving people to the border. This time, Trump is cleverly insisting that he means only gang members here illegally. But if you can unilaterally deport somebody because you say he is a gang member, you can also unilaterally say what defines a gang. I often wonder as I watch the vanity campaigns spring up, even on the Republican side, about the people who in the present climate of Trump and DeSantis and this infant Knowles and this idiot Marjorie Taylor Greene and the other merchants of prejudice and hate and retribution. All these people who could never get 10 percent support in the current climate For the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, and man, does he not understand the party he's allied himself with. I think about them often, and I wonder if the light has ever flashed above their heads, even just momentarily. Do they hear what I just said? That in the present climate of Trump and DeSantis, not one of them could ever get 10 percent? Do they think even for a moment, well, yeah, that's true, because if something happened to Trump and DeSantis, somebody else would step up and run as Trump. Could be Trump Jr., could be Stephen Miller. Lord knows who'd be willing to do it and who they would be willing to follow. Do they ever think, yeah, I, I can't win in this climate, and thus my only chance is to change the climate, to change the climate somehow, if not for this nomination, then for the next one? What would happen if Haley or Pompeo or even Pence stood up and said— Donald Trump is insane. He is without principles or beliefs. I know him. I worked for him. You do not matter to him. Only he matters to him. He would kill you to become president. He is a terrorist. He is our Hitler. What if one of them said that? Or if that is far too strong, and I suspect it would be in each case I have mentioned... Could one of them simply stand in front of the evangelicals, the alleged Christians, the self-pronounced God-fearing people, and point out that Trump, Saturday night, has now declared himself to be retribution when their God has already said, vengeance is mine. ahead of us in this edition of Countdown, a Republican idea so bad, so un-American that even Newt Gingrich thinks it's un-American. There's great sadness in baseball today as one of the most popular local broadcasters of the game dies suddenly and a city and a sport weep. And in an all-new edition of Things I Promise Not to Tell, the day the conductor had to help me pry my face off the window of the 12.53 to Grand Central because it had frozen there. That's next. This is Countdown.
2: Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Nothing to do with anyone personally, but Creighton is the team every year that the nerds, you know, the basketball nerds are like, you know who's ready to get Creighton? You know, watch Creighton.
0: You buy Toyota Dependability, meaning your truck will hold this value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit BuyAToyota.com.
3: Toyota, let's go places. Daylight savings time is starting up in most states. The goal to give all of us more daylight right through to November. With it, you may actually feel as if there are more hours in the day. But if you are hiring, it may actually feel like it's taking even longer to find qualified candidates. There is no daylight hiring time. There's only one way to find those qualified candidates. That way is ZipRecruiter. Right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com/slash countdown. Daylight savings time or not, ZipRecruiter works round the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to more than 100 job sites so you reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter's smart technology also scans thousands of resumes quickly to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash countdown to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash countdown. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. There is a great sadness in baseball today, and in one of its major league cities, that sadness will continue for literally decades to come. Odds are probably pretty good. You never heard Dave Wills broadcast a baseball game, and I am sorry about that. He was just terrific at it. Dave Wills began with the Chicago White Sox, and since 2005, he had done the games of the Tampa Bay Rays. And he had one of those gigantic, larger-than-life radio voices that all of them used to have that I had envied since I was a kid. It was strong and broad and yet welcoming and friendly with the happy side effect of imparting any game or any team with that big game flavor. Dave did the Tampa games for 18 years. He broadcast Saturday's exhibition game against the Yankees at George Steinbrenner Field in Tampa with his partner for all of those years, Andy Freed. The voice boomed Saturday, hearty and with succinct descriptions and just that edge of acerbity and doubt that made it clear he covered that team. He liked that team. He was paid by that team. But he would never, ever, ever lie just to make that team look better than it deserved. Most importantly, the booming voice this spring had seemingly reassured everybody who got so scared last September that at age 58, Dave Wills was just fine. There had been a spell of tachycardia last year, rapid, irregular heartbeat. He had been hospitalized in Toronto. He missed about two weeks, but Dave was back for the playoffs and he'd had a good winter. Sometime early Sunday morning, Dave Wills died in his sleep in his bed, in his home with his family in Lutz, Florida. There's no official word yet, but it seems almost certain it had something to do with his heart, but who knows? And ultimately, that is not the point. I had wanted to be a play-by-play baseball announcer from the age of eight, right after I realized I would never get over my fear of getting hit in the head with the ball, through the same set of circumstances that gave me so many extraordinary great breaks in my career. I never even got a chance to find out if it was worth the slog that the job requires to be good enough for the big leagues. That would be three years driving around the Carolina League or the Midwest League or the California State League working by yourself and wondering if anybody was listening. And after you said something really dumb, hoping nobody was. Anyway, I had done one play-by-play game in my life baseball on tv for espn in 1993 and it was okay and then i went into news and went to other networks and i didn't do any more play-by-play but when i went back to espn in 2018 part of the deal was and it was half their idea and half mine that we should find out if maybe at the age of 59 i could after all i had done in baseball break in as a rookie play-by-play man I did, I think, five games, one on TV, four on radio, and more were scheduled, but I had a health issue that kept me from traveling, and then the pandemic in 2020 made the whole thing academic. And to be fair, I had flashes of brilliance. Absolutely. Some of my play-by-play, especially in that TV game, was really, really good. On the other hand... Every mistake that I would have made in those three years I did not spend driving around the Carolina League, I made during those five games. I think I could do it and do it really well, even just starting now. And I'd need to go to the Carolina League for at least a year. Opening day is April 6th, and I'm 64 years old. And I mention all this here in an obituary. Because the first game I did for ESPN Radio, June 14th, 2018, was at Yankee Stadium here in New York, and the visiting team was the Tampa Bay Rays and their announcers, Andy Freed and Dave Wills. My out-of-body experience began sometime on the 12th or the 13th. I think it was amplified by my realization as I walked into Yankee Stadium that afternoon that the fact that I had not spent three days in the Carolina League, let alone three years, was likely to come out at some point. Jim Bowden did the game with me. He was a great help. John Sterling and Susan Waldman, the Yankees announcers, friends for decades, could not have been more supportive. But the guy who talked me back into my body that day, reminding me of all the broadcasts I had done, in other fields that were way more like baseball play-by-play than I had ever thought or realized. The man who did that was Dave Wills. I can still see him sitting across from me at dinner in the Yankee Stadium press room as my anxiety was growing. Just remember to say what you see. If you don't see it, tell the audience that. If it's funny, laugh. If it's sad, cry. Just be honest with your listener. And if it goes really bad, well, hell, just tap on the glass between your booth and our booth, and either Andy or I will come over, and we'll fill in for you while you go get sick in the bathroom. (sighs) I still don't know if that broadcast I did was any good or not. Still haven't listened to it. I know it was not as good as Dave Wills. And I do know that his joke about getting sick gave me a laugh that made me pretty much myself again. If it's funny, laugh. If it's sad, cry. Dave Wills is gone, and a lot of us are crying today. Okay. I had one moment I was ruminating on the underrated beauty of the Hudson River. The next moment, I was trying to dislodge myself from the train window, to which I had become stuck. Next. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Sergei Lavrov, the slime bucket who happens to be foreign minister of Russia. I presume you have seen this, but sometimes it's better when you're only hearing the audio this is what happens when you forget you are not talking to people as gullible or as cowed as russians that you're outside your own bubble i would have thought lavrov would have noticed this because he was speaking english and not russian but no not so much this was friday in new delhi at the racina dialogue multinational conference in india you know uh, the war uh, which uh trying to stop and which was launched against us using Ukrainian Ukrainian people Uh, of course it influenced, influenced, influenced uh, the uh, policy of Russia including energy policy I assume the bell there was them ordering him off the stage like on the old gong show with Chuck Barris the runner up florida state senator jason brodeur and what have you been up to jason he's the bozo who introduced the legislation i mentioned the other day that would require bloggers who write about ron DeFascist or other members of his regime to register with the state of florida and fine them up to twenty five hundred dollars per blog post if they fail to report if they had been paid for writing about him and if so by whom how fascist is Senator Brodeur's idea? How pathetic? How outside anything resembling the mainstream? How un-American? Quote, The idea that bloggers criticizing a politician should register with the government is insane, writes one critic. It is an embarrassment that it is a Republican state legislator in Florida who introduced a bill to that effect. He should withdraw it immediately. Who wrote that? Note Gingrich wrote that. Jason You just defended Newt Gingrich's sense of the freedom of the press. Newt Gingrich once proposed suspending parts of the First Amendment to stop terrorists from using emails. (sighs) But our winner, Brett Baer, Fox quote news, unquote. I also mentioned this last week when I listed 10 life hacks to destroy that channel, some of which you can try at home. Years ago at a White House correspondence dinner, Brett Baer came up to me and very nicely, very earnestly, as if I didn't understand or had never been told this, he explained that at Fox there were really two networks the opinion one that O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and the new guy they just hired after we'd fired him, Tucker Carlson, and the others worked at, and then the non opinion network where he, Brett Baer, and Chris Wallace and some other people worked at. See? I smiled and shook his hand and went, I don't think he understands. Well, sure enough, what pops up in the New York Times over the weekend? A play-by-play account of the recording of a Fox, quote, News, unquote, Zoom call after the 2020 election, some of which Peter Baker of the Times had put in one of those I saved this stuff till I got the publisher's advance books, and some of which he had not. Also, there were other internal communications from inside the Castle Rupert. And who are the two people quoted most extensively, not just moaning about the damage Fox did to itself by being the first outlet to call Arizona for Joe Biden, but suggesting the call should be reversed? Tucker Carlson? No. John Hannity? No. Maria Bartiromo? No. Martha McCallum? the Fox non-opinion clown who on January 6th had congratulated the insurrectionists on their victory and how they had, quote, disrupted the system, and Brett Baer. Baker's piece in the Times quotes an email Baer sent two days after the election to Fox executive Jay Wallace. It's hurting us, Mr. Journalism wrote of calling Arizona for Biden. The sooner we pull it, even if it gives us major egg and put it back in his column, the better we are, in my opinion. End quote from Brett Baer. Everything that is wrong with Fox, how people who might have been journalists, even, you know, ordinary biased conservative journalists, how they were poisoned by the perpetuation of the big lie, is in one part of Brett Baer's email there. The sooner we poll, the call of Arizona for Biden and put it back in his Trump's column, the better. But of course, Arizona was never in Trump's column. It never would be. Trump lost Arizona. And here is Fox's primary supposed news anchor. And he cannot conceive that Trump could have lost or that the neutral default position should be that nobody had won Arizona. If you change the call on Arizona, it would mean nobody had won it. To Brett Bear, neutrality, journalism, non opinion was to assume that Trump had won. Brett, just as bad as the rest of them bear, today's worst person in the
1: world!
4: Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. Like a rugged half ton tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma. Delivering trail dominating power and captivating style, the new Tacoma was born to make your off roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM,
1: the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
3: still ahead on countdown so what my face stuck to the side of the train and they had to help break me free like that's never happened to you an all-new edition of things i promise not to tell coming up first in each edition of countdown we feature a dog in need you can help every dog has its day two of them today brooklyn and butter they are brothers More carnage at the New York pound. These are big cane corsos. They were only brought in last Thursday. They're already on the kill list. They came in relaxed, affectionate, respectful to adults, kids, and other dogs alike. Now, already, they are stressed and terrified and too dangerous to be let out of their kennels, according to the pound handlers. In five days in the care of the city of New York, this happened. Your pledges to save Brooklyn and Butter can prevent this unnecessary tragedy. They will help a rescue group pull them out and save them and train them. Look for Brooklyn and Butter on my Twitter feed and retweet them if you can. I thank you, and Brooklyn and Butter thank you. The number one story on the countdown and things I promised not to tell. And this is anything but an important career story. But I was reminded of it recently and I laughed like hell. So I thought maybe you should, too. I haven't seen all of them in this country, but to my mind, the most underrated of American rivers is the one I grew up along, the Hudson gets a bad rap because it's associated with New York City and the deteriorating remnants of the city's once dominant piers, some of which have been unused and rotting for half a century now. But further upstate, literally just past the city line, the Hudson is a magnificent river just to watch, never mind ride on. This is particularly true during a stretch in which the western side of the river is fronted by a series of sheer cliffs called the Palisades, brownish-black and striated carved as the river took shape millions of years ago, but always looking like they had been carefully designed for aesthetic effect. Unfortunately, they are best seen from the commuter railroad that runs along the Hudson into Westchester County, New York, instead of a series of parks or even private palaces. Our forefathers had the presence of mind to build factories and copper processing plants and other nightmares right on the Hudson because of the obvious transportation benefits the Hudson provided. And so the train tracks were laid out next to the river because that made it even easier to get stuff to and from the big city and damn the views or the ability to appreciate life on the water or the pollution. Still, if you ever find yourself now taking a train from Grand Central Station into the western half of Westchester... Get a window seat on the left side of the train, or better yet, when you come back into New York City, sit on the right side, on the river side, and you will get 15 minutes or more of the most magnificent view imaginable out the big windows. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, the Palisades provide the Hudson with a magnificent frame that's almost like a miniature Grand Canyon. I remember thinking of all this, that one day early in 1980, I was finally feeling a little better, thanks to Dr. Cessolini. Dr. Cessolini had been my physician since I was a boy, and he was the school doctor, and he'd been the town doctor since about 1944. And he always name-dropped other patients I'd never heard of. And as I finished my last growth spurt at the end of my 20th year, I had frequent back pain, no fun at all. And sleeping on the floor helped a little, but not enough. And finally, Cecilini, who had been a hospital doctor during World War II and had seen everything, said, "Hey, just get this prescription filled. Take one of them every day for the next week. It's called a muscle relaxant. This'll loosen up your back. It'll uh, lessen the pain a little bit. Just don't, uh, you know, don't operate any heavy machinery. Do You operate heavy machinery when you do those sports casts, yours, Keith." <laughs> I had a patient try to run a processor at the copper factory while he took this in 1957. He lost three fingers. Leonardo Benvenuti. You know, any of the Benvenuti's used to live on William Street? I laughed. This was him every time. The Benvenuti's on William Street. The Smith's on William Street. The Williams on Smith Street. Anyway, back to the muscle relaxants. I don't think I had ever heard of them before, let alone taken one. I took my barking back to the pharmacy in my hometown of Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. I got the prescription filled. I bought a soda at the pizza parlor across the street, and I ambled down the tiny village's picturesque business district. It's three blocks long. Past the statue our old neighbor Jacques Lipschitz donated, and the ultra-modern library, and right into the train station. It was January. It was about 12 degrees. And as I waited for the train to make its 40 minute trip into the city and my job as a sportscaster for the radio network of United Press International, I took the pill. What were they called again? Muscle, muscle relaxants that Dr. C had given me and given his other patient, Rico Randazzo, or was that some guy he mentioned in 1966 to me? I worked the night shift at UPI, so the train was almost always empty, and thus I almost always had my choice of window seats. Midday and midwinter combined to make the sun glisten with extra sparkle off the magnificent Hudson, and the sun's angle was such that the palisades behind them gleamed brightly as well. And I was thinking about just how gorgeous they were and how underrated the Hudson was. And, and, and I felt myself drifting away. I felt two hands, one on each shoulder, shaking me violently. Hey, buddy. Hey, 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 buddy. I fought to open my eyes and to avoid the bad breath now enveloping my face. As I finally came around, I realized it was the conductor who had just taken my ticket. The train wasn't moving. In fact, only half of the lights were on in the train. The Palisades were long gone, Not the Hudson, nor the Palisades, but darkness came in through the windows. I was completely confused. Come on, shake it off. You got to get out of here. This is as far as we go. Train's going out of service. You don't get off now, you'll be parked under 37th Street for the rest of the day. Through my fog and my haze, I finally began to understand what had happened and where I was. And I began to try to stand when a horrifying awareness overtook me. I could not move the right side of my face. What was worse, I could barely feel the right side of my face. Good God, what had happened to me? Was this like that haunting episode of Alfred Hitchcock where the woman is struggling to wake up and remember the details of the accident out on San Francisco Bay the night before? Only as it finally comes back to her, it turns out the accident had drowned her boyfriend. And the reason it was so difficult to remember was as she realized only when she got up and saw her reflection in a mirror that the accident hadn't happened last night, but it had happened in 1905 and she'd been in an insane asylum for half a century. Was that what had happened to me? No, actually, as I discovered when my struggle finally freed my face from the train window to which it had stuck because I had drooled for like 35 consecutive minutes because I had taken the muscle relaxant, because I had taken it on an empty stomach, because I knew nothing about muscle relaxants, because I was out cold with my mouth open, pressed up against the train window on a 12 degree day, and I had gotten frozen to the glass. Look, it was not quite half a century in an insane asylum, but certainly more embarrassing. It seemed like it took me half a century to pull all of this together. I stood up wobbly. I apologized to the conductor and I mumbled back back pain, new new, new drug. And as I banked from one side of the doorway to the other and bounced out onto the platform, the conductor shouted after me, only take them at night, huh? That little saga, yeah, Doc, my back is better, but I left half the skin on my right cheek frozen to the 120 from Hastings to Grand Central. He'd probably say, yeah, that happened to another patient of mine, Carlo Giambardo. That reminded me of a much later story from Dr. Cecellini, and I don't want to leave the wrong impression here. Edward Cecellini was a terrific doctor. He practiced into his 90s. He used to tell me to come visit him at his practice in his home on Farragut Parkway. Anytime I was up from the city visiting my folks, well, just shoot the breeze. And he'd tell me about something about treating Umberto Flambini in the Army Hospital in 1944. And he'd ask me if I went to school with Marco Bartolini and then say he had to go. He was taking a course over at SUNY Purchase about the latest computer-aided diagnostic tools The man was 90 years old. He never stopped learning. Great man. And did he howl at the muscle relaxing story? Sorry, I didn't warn you. Oh, well, just take him at night. I had another patient do that in 1917. All right, anyway, now it's 1995, and I'm working at ESPN, and I'm supposed to fly to Vancouver to do a cameo in an Adam Sandler golf movie, which I suppose was Happy Gilmore. And I didn't want to try to fly to Chicago and then change for Vancouver After going the two hours from the middle of Connecticut to JFK. So I came in to my folks' house the day before. I took the folks out to dinner. I stayed over in the spare room to leave from their house to the airport in the morning. And at some point in the middle of the night, I began to have chest pains. Literally, the top of my ribs hurt and my breathing was constricted and I couldn't get back to sleep. And now I'm thinking, I don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. So I canceled the trip. And I head up to Doctor Cicalini as soon as he's opened up shop, and he's 85 now, and he gives me the big welcome as usual. And I tell him the story, and he says, "Oh, well, yeah, to think it's nothing to worry about, but we uh, we should get this on the record just in case your movie company gets pissy with you about canceling." That happened to another friend of mine, patient Francesco Lola Brigida. He had a cameo in Moby Dick in 1956. He had to cancel; he wanted to see him. How about you get your dad, just drive you up to the hospital in Dobbs Ferry. And I'll, I'll meet you there, and, oh, like half an hour, hour and a half, something like that. Let me just run a couple of tests on you when we get you up. There's no rush whatsoever, whatsoever. Now he stares off into space for a second, and he looks back at me. He says, I got an a idea a little simpler. I have to go there later up to, to drop off some paperwork on some other guy. Frisco Gaspucci. You no know Frisco? Anyway, just give me a second. I'll call him and I'll tell him we're coming up. And I just, You just hop in the car with me. Go out in the waiting room. I'm going to call him about Frisco and I got to worry about doctor-patient confidentiality. But about Frisco-Gaspucci, so, you know, I got to worry about that. So I don't want you listening. So now, Ed Cecillini is driving me to Dobbsbury Hospital. And I'm thinking about how much he defines the idea of a really dedicated doctor and how every other patient he's ever mentioned to me, I've never heard of one of them. And we get to the hospital. and I don't know. We talked about baseball or my folks or something. And he drives right up to the ER and we walk in like it's nothing. And he waves to the admitting nurse. Hi, Sheila. How's your son, Sheila? And he points at me, says, that's the guy. And he says, like, it was absolutely the way they do it at every hospital. You can get all his info from him after we run this little check on him. All right. And we go right into the room. And two nurses are in there, and they say hi. And one of them tells me to take off my shirt. The other starts shaving places on my chest. And before I know what's happening, I've got electrodes on me. And they're hooking me up to an EKG, and they're drawing blood. And Cecilini reads the start of the EKG printout, and he smiles at me. He says, I'm sorry, I scammed you. But the way you described your chest pains, I thought it was uh, 50-50. you had a heart attack. Last thing I want to do is tell you that, just in case you had had a heart attack. And then you had another one. That happened to another patient of mine, Bernardo Petrosante. You know, Bernardo, oh, well, right, let me look at this. Ah, you're fine. Let me, let me just wait on the blood gases. Double check that. Go out there and do the paperwork for shill at the desk. I think it's just a muscle problem. The son of a gun had not only made sure I didn't know it might be serious, it might be heart attack serious, but he conned me into going to the emergency room without alarming me or even letting me know that was his plan all along. And as I'm brushing the shaved hairs off my chest and putting my shirt on, I say thanks. And then it hits me. Hey, another thing, Doc, Bernardo Pietrosante and Umberto Flambini and all these other patients you've mentioned all these years, they don't really exist, do they? And he says, oh, yeah, well, yeah, you got me about that. I learned a long time ago. Make sure your patient never feels like they're the first idiot to have done this to themselves. Come on, I'll give you a lift back to your folks. Might look in and see how your dad's doing if he's got a moment. How I miss Dr. Cecilini. Should be a statue to him in Hastings. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the studios of the Olderman Broadcasting Empire, high atop its headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building here in New York. Executive Director Umberto Flambini. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Produced by TKO Brothers. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Ulberman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Stevie Van Zandt. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 790th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government in the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and Good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Martha Stewart, the original influencer.
2: When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. the six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall. And the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max.
4: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree.